Hi, I'm Nam Kiwanuka. Join us and be part of the conversation on The Thread, streaming on TVO.org, The Thread with Nam on YouTube and other TVO platforms, and be sure to follow us on Instagram at TVO The Thread. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, Doug Ford's mandate letters to cabinet ministers will remain secret after the Supreme Court of Canada sides with the Premier. Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow's gambit to keep Toronto's tax hike only high-ish seems to have paid off. Ontario Power Generation will refurbish the Pickering Nuclear Generating Station and get many more years of service out of the province's first nuclear power plant. And for your column, my column, I will be focusing on that issue of the Pickering refurbishment. And I'll focus on a former cabinet minister who at age 79 made the discovery of a lifetime. It's Tuesday, February 6th, 2024. So let's get to it. Howdy, partner. Here we are. This is, is this our last audio-only podcast? I believe, yes. This I is think... our last time, uh, last time in this uh, windowless audio room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we have one window and through which we can see Matthew, our producer, but otherwise nothing av- outdoors. So this is it from now. We got we to wear appropriate clothing from now on because uh, yeah. we're going to be on video as well. I'm going to have to shave in the mornings before yes, a podcast. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. And bathe. I would, you know, that would be a good well, thing. Well, given how cramped we are, I have been bathing <laughs> okay. here. <laughs> Glad to hear that. Now, have you, have you seen the hot new t-shirt these days for sale. Uh, I, I think I know what's coming. <laughs> I, I believe I've seen it, but uh, please do go on. Well, it's a shirt that will no doubt be popular with municipal politicians across Ontario because it simply says, that's provincial. Thanks for asking. And as you might imagine, this started uh, from a municipal politician by the name of Cam Guthrie, who is the mayor of Guelph. And apparently he said that to someone in answer to a question about why he wasn't taking care of some particular problem. And thus a slogan was born and so apparently was a new popular T-shirt. You know, I I, I do love this side of Canadian government because uh, we have uh, federal uh, government, we have provincial government, we have municipal governments, and... With so many issues, that is exactly the issue. They can all point at each other. You know, 20 years ago, I was door knocking in a provincial by-election and uh, a guy started yelling at us about how his property taxes had gone up so much uh, under uh, the mayor of the day. And uh, I had to say, well, actually, that one's not us. Um, (laughs) One of my colleagues got substantially more... um, aggressive in trying to rebut this issue. And I was at a certain point, I was like, you know what, let's just pull these, pull this guy off of the, the doorstep. Uh, because at the end of the day, this is an important point to know the division of powers among uh, Canadian governments. Mm-hmm. But when you're trying to convince somebody to vote for you, saying, actually, that was not our fault is of uh, limited utility, well, I discovered. <laughs> let's put it this way. You might have been 20 years ahead of your time because Cam Guthrie, apparently the mayor, has said, hey, that's provincial. Thanks for asking. So seems to be working for him. Maybe you were just ahead of your time. Let's get to the mailbag. We do enjoy getting your feedback at this email address, onpolitics at tvo.org. And JMM, why don't you stick your hand in that mailbag and pluck something out for this week? This week, we have a letter from listener Gabriel Lawrence, who has a question about Service Ontario. Very timely. Uh, He writes... 
Hi, Steve and John. Uh, I can't wait until the little red dot on my pocket cast shows on On Polly, meaning I have a new episode to listen to. Thanks for making the best local podcast out there. Nice. Thank you. Uh, it would be interesting to take a deeper dive into how that uh, structure is currently working, the structure of putting Service Ontario kiosks in Staples locations. My understanding is that they are currently owned by small businesses, owner-operator type arrangements, and they are being told that their businesses will be shutting down in 60 days' notice. I love the quote, take care of the pennies and the dollars will take care of themselves. I don't see what the controversy is here. Either this makes financial sense and makes visiting a service Ontario more convenient for Ontarians, longer hours, or it doesn't. We'll see what the Auditor General says about it. Thanks for everything you do. Best, Gabe. Thanks for that, Gabe. That's great. Okay, let's t- just as we get set to take a kick at this, Monday morning, you saw the press conference that uh, Premier Ford had with Olivia Chow? I did indeed, okay, yes. Okay, and you saw that Richard Southern from City News tried to ask a question about this, and the Premier really kind of, he, he said, oh, Richard, Richard, you're a dog with a bone with this thing. Let it go, man. It's over and done with already. Richard's yeah, getting I, under his skin a little bit. I, 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 uh, I don't love elected officials of any uh, party or order of government telling journalists what they should and should not be writing. And I, I think Richard uh, probably did not take the premier's advice. And his response was, well, just 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 release the study upon which your policy is based and I'd be happy to go away. But I don't think that's going to happen. Anyway, Gabe, back to you. Service Ontario was established, actually not in under the current government, but it goes all the way back to 2006. Under Dalton McGuinty's Liberal government, it was meant to be a one-stop shop for government services, including driver's licenses, birth certificates, health cards, and the like. Back in the day before Service Ontario outlets existed, this is where I come in with my first-hand knowledge about way back when, if you wanted to get your driver's license renewed, you actually had to go downtown to the McDonald block at Queen's Park, Bay and Wellesley, take a number, and then you sat there with everybody else, sometimes for half an hour, sometimes for an hour. If you went on lunch hour, you know, there's a lot of people there, uh, or depending on what day of the week you went, you know, Fridays were never great either. And then you got your renewal. It was not, shall we say, the most customer-friendly of circumstances. Now, as the years moved on, Service Ontario sites were created, and then the private sector joined in and provided those services as well. For example, a little over 10 years ago, there were 82 Service Ontario sites, 82, but there were also 207 privately owned sites, and they were extremely profitable. Why so many privately owned sites? Mr. McGrath will pick up the story from there. Well, the short version is that uh, many locations are privately owned because uh, businesses can apply to open a location there. There's an online portal and they get a a contract under the Ministry of Government and Consumer Services. There are, of course, plenty of provincial services that are licensed out through uh, private providers. Um, One that our listeners might be most familiar with is uh, retailing lottery tickets, right? Uh, When uh, a convenience store sells you a lottery ticket, they are doing it under contract to Uh, Ontario Lottery and Gaming. Uh, Most Service Ontario locations are owned by private operators, uh, but it it isn't purely privately run. Service Ontario runs the the mailrooms, contact centres, online services, and and a lot of the uh, public infrastructure, so to speak, that the private operators uh, rely on to make the whole system work. And let's bring the story back to today. At least 11 privately run Service Ontario locations are now being moved into staple stores, and we will have to wait and see what the Auditor General reports back on in terms of the value for money on that deal. Uh, We've already uh, mentioned his name, but really uh, kudos to our colleague Richard Southern for uh, sticking with this story and and first breaking it uh, and and then chasing it as well. Again, if you'd like to ask about content on the show, do please email us at onpolitics at tv. 
Now, on to issue one. We're going to start this week's podcast talking about mandate letters. Now, these are essentially the marching orders that premiers give to their cabinet ministers with a greater or lesser amount of detail on what they expect their ministers to achieve in their portfolios. The previous Liberal government under Premier Kathleen Wynne always made mandate letters public. For whatever reason, the current Doug Ford government never has. So the CBC took them to court to try to get those mandate letters made public, and the Supreme Court has ruled. Last Friday, they came in with their verdict. Sorry, CBC, the Premier can keep his mandate lettered secret if he wants. John Michael, why don't you take us through the ruling? So just for starters, this is not like a charter case, right? There's no charter right to uh, see these mandate letters. This was basically a question of the courts interpreting what Ontario's law says and whether uh, it was being properly interpreted. So uh, there, are, there are constitutional conventions that, that underpin uh, this particular law. Um, and the, we're talking about the uh, Freedom of Information and Privacy Protection Act, uh, basically Ontario's primary freedom of information law. And it has a very broad exemption in the law for cabinet documents, uh, any kind of advice to cabinet or anything that would inform the public about the way that de- uh, debates at cabinet uh, proceeded, because there was a long tradition in our sort of parliamentary system of cabinet secrecy. Um, the Provincial Information and Privacy Commissioner had ruled that the mandate letters that uh, Ford issued his cabinet in 2018 were not like a summary of the debates that occurred in cabinet, but they were basically products of those debates in the same way that like a uh, a government policy announcement or a press release is a product of uh, cabinet debates. And, and therefore so, could be revealed. Exactly. And in fact, were required to be under uh, the legislation. Two lower courts had actually agreed with the Information and Privacy Commissioner, but the Supreme Court of Canada, in their decision last week, did not. They said that the Privacy Commissioner and the lower courts had really read cabinet confidentiality too narrowly and that releasing the mandate letters would harm cabinet confidentiality and that you have to understand that these these mandate letters don't just come out and, and that's the end of the policymaking process. They are part of a whole continuum of activity. The, the ministers then go back and they make policy based on these mandate letters and then those policies that get, get back to cabinet where they are debated more and more. And so the Supreme Court said basically, no, you, the, the government can choose to release these letters or it could also choose to uh, rewrite the legislation. But as the law is written now and uh, with the constitutional conventions that we have, the government is not required to release these letters. And when you say the Supreme Court decided, you really mean the whole Supreme Court decided this was a slam dunk for the premier. He got seven votes and none against. Right. There was one minor dissent, but not on on this substantive issue here of um, all of the justices of the Supreme Court agreed that the uh, lower courts had read the law wrong, basically, and that the uh, this this convention of of cabinet secrecy uh, was so important that it had to be uh, respected. Now, opposition reaction. Bonnie Crombie, the new liberal leader, released a statement after the decision was made public saying if she has the honor of forming the next government of Ontario after the next election, she would make public her ministerial mandate letters if she is the premier. Marit Stiles, who is the opposition leader, the official opposition leader in the House today, was adamant that she would do the same. I would absolutely share the mandate letters. 
you can hear you I think that this has become uh, a fair and important practice of governments to share those those mandate letters um, I think it's a it's symbolic, I think, that a government wants to share their priorities with the people of Ontario. I think hiding those mandate letters is uh, sends a signal to Ontarians that you're you're not being upfront and honest. There's something going on behind the scenes uh, that people should be worried about. So let's get into this. Why do you think the government, John Michael, has uh, repeatedly refused to make these mandate letters public when many other governments in the country are doing just that? Well, so obviously there's the the fact that these letters do give some insight into the government's priorities. And uh, frankly, they make it very clear when the government doesn't uh, reach one of its goals. One of those goals, for instance, was to cut hospital wait times. But uh, <laughs> look around. The government has not exactly succeeded uh, on that mark. Uh, government wait times are uh, continuing to be uh, high, are in fact getting longer in many places. So that's obviously a, l- a little embarrassing for the government. You know, I do think there is a uh, a more sincere explanation, if I could put it that way, and that, uh, you know, there is a balance between uh, what the public wants to know and the, the importance of, of cabinet confidentiality. Uh, the Supreme Court's decision was uh, an attempt to balance those two principles. Obviously, uh, you know, I think I could say as journalists, we uh, uh, default towards wanting to see more disclosure. And, and I, I kind of wish from that perspective that uh, the the mandate letters had been released. But of course, well, they have been, but let's we can talk about that separately. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I do want to say, people might be asking, like, why should we care about cabinet confidentiality? And, and I do think it's worth just stressing here that we have this norm of, you know, what we call cabinet solidarity, right? Once cabinet has made a decision, every cabinet minister is expected to defend the policy of the government whatever they said behind closed doors. Or resign if you can't. Exactly, right? And so part of the way you make that work is by allowing cabinet to debate things in private secretly. And you hope that uh, cabinet is is, uh, debating things forcefully and frankly, and ministers may be yelling at each other behind closed doors. But then... You know, once they come out, they they have you hope again uh, arrived at the best possible policy that everybody can can defend, and so protecting cabinet confidentiality is ideally part of preserving uh, the the best result from government. Uh, the Supreme Court said in its decision that you know cabinet secrecy uh, promotes what they said candor, solidarity, efficiency, uh, all in the aid of uh, effective government and responsible government. Our uh, system of parliamentary government here in Canada. I, I did, of course, allude to the fact that the letters actually have been released. Uh, Global News did publish them in September last year. Uh, the letters highlighted things like scrapping the carbon tax, uh, removing the C of Hydro One. Uh, it's kind of a, a deep cut. People might remember that clip from the archives. Um, and objectives like, as we mentioned, uh, cutting hospital wait times. So that's a big win for the Premier on the mandate letters issue. And with that, we move on to issue two. Well, the tone between the federal government and the mayor of Toronto was decidedly improved last week. Deputy Prime Minister Chrystia Freeland brought a check to Olivia Chow for $162 million, much of that going toward housing assistance. You know, it was only a few weeks ago that Liberal MPs were fanning out, criticizing Chow for not being a team player. But apparently, that's all ancient history now. JMM, what happened? Well, uh... 
I, I don't think our listeners are uh, mystified by some, some facts, like the fact that uh, Toronto is currently a liberal stronghold federally. Uh, the Conservative Party of Canada, however, does have a really substantial lead in national polling. Um, so the Liberals are uh, pretty interested in holding on to their power in uh, this city, you know, 25 seats to, to hold on to here. Uh, 25 seats doesn't mean as much as it does nationally as it does provincially, but still, you, you want to hold those seats if you can. So uh, the pressure that uh, Mayor Chow brought to this game, in particular, the threat to uh, name a potential tax increase as the federal impacts levy, um, you know, a bit of hardball there. And it, it yeah. did uh, put the federal liberals into a bind. Well, and this was not the only example of the feds getting along so much better with another order of government. Dominic LeBlanc, who is a longtime cabinet minister, minister of public safety, joined Premier Doug Ford last week in Aurora, just north of Toronto, to announce a $121 million partnership to crack down on guns and gang violence. What do we think about this development of peace breaking out all over? Well, you know, I think the status quo works for everybody who is currently in power, right? Sort of by definition. Um, but there's also, I, I think, the really uh, long-running historical trend that uh, Ontarians don't really like to put the same party in power, both in Ottawa and at Queen's Park at the same time. So it is in Ford's interest to keep the Liberals in power federally, uh, maybe not ideologically, but certainly politically. Like, I, th I think in his heart of hearts, he would like the results that might come from a Prime Minister Poilievre, but not if it causes Ontario voters to think about how happy they are with Premier Ford. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we, we discussed a bit of this last week. You know, uh, Poilievre and Ford aren't really close political allies the way you, you might expect them to be. Uh, Ford has a, a reasonably close relationship with the federal government. Uh, some of that was forged during COVID, of course. Um, and a change federally could be difficult in some ways for Canada's most uh, populous and uh, economically prosperous province. I mean, just one example that the Premier was talking about this week is uh, uh, all of the investments they've made in electric vehicle infrastructure. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's controversial to say that the the federal government might not be ponying up a lot of cash for electric vehicles if uh, there's a change in government and a conservative party forms government. Um, you know, what does that mean for Ontario's auto sector? The, the short answer is you just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I read something this past week which suggested that uh, since Confederation, different parties have been in power federally and provincially in Ottawa and at Queen's Park something like 80 to 85 percent of the time. I mean, this is a thing. This is a thing. Uh, now, let me circle back to uh, the mayor of Toronto for a second because um, – and, and to do that, let's, let's reach into the mailbag yet again for something uh, from a listener by the name of Saad. And he writes, hi, John, Michael, and Steve. Love the show. It's been a great companion on many commutes. As someone in the GTA, I try to keep an eye on what's going on here even though it's difficult. I've noticed that Mayor Olivia Chow's approval rating has risen quite rapidly. I'm wondering what you two believe the main factors of this rise are. I know that she's made some big moves with both the provincial and federal governments and has improved some social services, but public opinion shifting this positively is rare. Further, do you think her increased approval rating will meaningfully improve the NDP's chances federally and provincially if it remains relatively steady? Once again, love the show. Look forward to hearing the next episode with curiosity. What a nice sign-off. With curiosity. Saad. Uh, okay, let's divvy this one up. Um, as to why Mayor Chow's approval ratings are so high, and the last poll I saw put that number at 71% approval. Joe Biden's below 30. 
Okay, Olivia Chow's at 71. That is a terrific number. And I would suggest part of the reason is because she came into office with very low expectations. She did not get a particularly high number of votes on by-election day, uh, but she has simply outperformed people's expectations. Brian Mulroney used to have this line, the former prime minister. He'd say, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And seen through that lens, Mayor Chow is looking pretty good right now. She's had some significant wins from both the feds and the province. And let's also remember, though, she's only been in office for about a half a year so far, and she is about to put through a big tax increase, biggest one in years and years, through City Hall in hopes of getting the budget closer to balance, which it still isn't. So, Saad, as we know, popularity is a fickle thing, but at the moment, the consensus seems to be she's doing quite well. Now, let's get to the second part of Saad's question, JMM. Given that Chow is a former New Democrat member of parliament, do you think she's got the kind of coattails that could help the provincial or even federal NDP? You know, I love this kind of a question because it is so hard to predict how politics will go. I, you know, I was thinking earlier today about uh, 2015 when Justin Trudeau won, and and he won in part because of uh, some substantial uh, public assistance that then Premier Wynne uh, gave him uh, during that election. I think it was probably the most effusive we've ever seen a premier lobby or campaign on behalf of uh, a fellow partisan uh, at the federal level. And uh, a lot of win liberals at the time believed that when Trudeau won that huge majority uh, in 2015, they, they, they thought that the Trudeau government would owe Ontario and would owe the win government. Nope. Uh, and <laughs> no, it just like that's not the way the, the coattails work. Doesn't work that way. Um, and so, you know, I find myself thinking about this question of um, could Olivia Chow benefit uh, the federal or provincial NDP? My instinct is to say not so much federally. Uh, I don't think that uh, the, being the mayor of Toronto is a nationally significant job. I think that's that's true, but I don't think it will translate to national politics the same way. Uh, provincially is another question, and I, I do think that uh, you know the demographics of uh, the province alone mean that uh, having the prominence of somebody like Chow at the, literally like the center of the GTA media market, uh, where uh, I mean she's in the headlines, you know, all the time, if she starts uh, sort of noisily campaigning for the NDP, um, that could help Marat Stiles potentially. But the question then would be, would she do that? There's going to be a provincial election before there will be the next municipal election. And the... I would say that the traditional wisdom is that mayors want to be careful about how much they wade into provincial politics mm -hmm. because you could so easily, you know, burn your bridges. And, and Olivia Chow, if she does, in fact, get reelected, she's going to have to work with whoever's in the premier's office. And she's taken quite a lot of pains to not promote herself, both when she was running for the job and since then as a partisan New Democrat. So that's, you know, that's also worth taking into the mix here. And no. of course, there was that lovely stuff between that Doug Ford said yesterday morning. Right? Well, exactly. Yeah. And, I, you know, you never know how much of this is uh, purely performance, but I don't think it's entirely performance. Uh, uh, Mayor Chow got uh, <laughs> really effusive praise uh, from uh, Doug Ford uh, at a press conference held Monday this week. I can tell you one thing. The mayor and I have a phenomenal relationship. We're doing some great things together. We're going to continue to work collaboratively, but I have all the confidence. Uh, the mayor's doing a good job in the, and the councillors down there. It's about working together, and that's exactly what we're going to do. 
Well, it just goes to show you, seven, eight months ago, she was an unmitigated disaster, according to the premier, but now they have a phenomenal relationship. So we just love it when peace breaks out all over. Don't time we? heals all things. <laughs> there we go. Okay, on to issue three. Last week, Energy Minister Todd Smith announced that the government is supporting Ontario Power Generation's plan to refurbish the Pickering Nuclear Generating Station uh, in the eastern GTA. They're investing $2 billion in engineering and design work, but the project could cost billions more and will take about a decade to complete. The refurbishment comes at a time when Ontario's electricity demands are set to skyrocket. Joining us to discuss this and more is Dr. Chris Kiefer, an emergency medical physician and president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Dr. Kiefer, thanks for joining us on the On Poly podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So your organization, uh, Canadians for Nuclear Energy, has been advocating for the government to retain uh, Pickering's foremost modern reactors for, uh, I believe, about a year. Uh, What did you think when you heard the news? I mean, I think it's great news um, on a whole number of, of, of levels. We've been fighting this campaign since 2020 um, as a nonprofit volunteer organization, independent from industry. Um, and we were really driven by the climate imperative. Pickering displaces an enormous amount of emissions. If it had been shut, um, we we're looking at 7.6 million transatlantic flights worth of CO2. It produces an enormous amount of medical isotopes. Uh, 20% of the world's single-use medical devices were sterilized with cobalt-60 made right there at Pickering. And Pickering played a pivotal role in Ontario's coal phase-out, which eliminated smog days here in Toronto um, and have saved many hundreds of lives, uh, as estimated by the Ontario Medical Association, by again providing the power for our nuclear-powered coal phase-out, North America's greatest greenhouse gas production. You are a, a medical doctor by training. You come at this from, a, I think, a different lens than economists or, or energy systems analysts. Uh, I mean, what to you are the important health implications of uh, retaining this nuclear reactor and, and uh, expanding, in fact, the, the use of nuclear energy in Ontario as this government is doing? Yeah, so I began practice uh, at the very beginning of our coal phase that we used to rely on coal for 25% of our electricity here in Ontario. Um, and again, that the Ontario Medical Association, uh, actually in partnership with our friends at the Ontario Clean Air Alliance, uh, did a lot of work and research and built momentum for that momentous uh, phase out of fossil energy. Um, they estimated that 19,000 premature deaths were occurring every year in Ontario due to air pollution, to which coal was a major contributor. Um, the reactivation of two units that had been mothballed at Pickering played a role alongside four reactivated Bruce power units, and that made dramatic improvements in air quality uh, across the province. Um, and definitely anecdotally in my clinical practice, I've seen less less asthma exacerbations, less uh, emphysema exacerbations, but we know as well there's a real hidden disease burden with particulate air pollution um, in terms of uh, vascular disease like heart attacks and strokes and, and cancer. So uh, Pickering's played a major role in that. Um, the ISO uh, confirmed that it would be replaced with natural gas uh, had it been shut, or certainly it will be for the years that it is undergoing refurbishment. Um, natural gas burns cleaner than coal, uh, but definitely contributes uh, chemical precursors of smog, um, and ultimately also is you know quite a climate pollutant. So um, you know from the long term impacts of climate change, there's a medical good news story here. But from the more proximate impacts that I've seen in my medical career, uh, Pickering has played a vital role. Uh, it was built instead of a coal plant. Um, and so for its entire life, it's it's done amazing things in terms of, you know, making our air quality far superior than it would be otherwise. 
Notwithstanding the work that uh, yourself and other nuclear advocates uh, have done in Ontario, there are still uh, plenty of people who have misgivings about nuclear power. Uh, How do you reassure people who are uh, afraid of potential dangers associated with nuclear energy? It's interesting. I mean, I I think the debate is maturing. Um, We're moving past the sort of Simpsons era. um, And frankly, you know, the Cold War boomer era. And I don't mean that pejoratively. My dad, dearly beloved, recently passed father. I mean, he was anti-nuclear. You know, I I spent quite a while arguing with him. And it's a testament to his open-mindedness that he was able to change his opinions. But yeah, I mean, he did duck and cover drills during the Cold War. And a lot of the fear of nuclear power, unfortunately, comes from the world of nuclear weapons. And so, you know, our fears about radiation, for instance, are hugely exaggerated because of that very real fear. And let's not kid ourselves, nuclear weapons are still out there. Um, That being said, I mean, as a medical physician, I dose people with radiation every day, um, sometimes in excess of doses they would get from the world's worst nuclear accidents. Um, We're talking about full body CT scans, for instance, that in a a moment, uh, you know, in a flash uh, will provide a dose of radiation greater than, um, you know, the 6 million people closest to Chernobyl got in 20 years. Um, So when you have the kind of medical understanding, um, you're able to put these risks in context. Um, And in fact, you know, Canada has a perfect track record in terms of uh, causing any you know, injuries or, or deaths due to radiation from our nuclear sector. Um, I think we have the safest nuclear reactor technology in the world. Um, and so, you know, I, I try and empathize with people who, uh, you know, oppose nuclear power. I think that their concerns are based in, you know, a real lived experience. And I want to I want to acknowledge that and, and try and communicate as best I can to hopefully dispel some of those fears. Aside from the uh, potential environmental or or human health uh, risks that people have anxiety about, there is also the issue of cost. Uh, Certainly, historically, we had cost overruns with the uh, Darlington uh, reactor's initial construction. Now, the refurbishment of of Darlington and Bruce seems to be going uh, relatively according to plan and on budget uh, from all of the the publicly available information. Uh, But what confidence should we have that... uh, Pickering refurbishment, which is going to be a very uh, different type of work. It's it's a it's an older design, a different design, a different facility than uh, Darlington and Bruce. How confident should we be that this project won't, in fact, go over budget? Well, I mean, first off, nuclear like hydroelectricity is a capital intensive project that has an excellent long term value proposition. And in terms of the cost of refurbishment, I mean, these are eye watering numbers. Uh, as we see at Bruce, um, you know, those refurbishments are going to cost uh, when all is said is done, I think about $12 billion. But that is absorbed in a rate that Bruce is getting paid on contract below market value. Uh, I believe 8.1 cents per kilowatt hour is absorbing $12 billion in refurbishment costs. So the sheer amount of electricity coming out of these plants, I think, is hard for the layperson and even myself to comprehend. Um, But these refurbishments uh, still contribute to Ontario's second cheapest source of electricity being um, nuclear, uh, only, only undercut by hydroelectricity. In terms of uh, Pickering, you rightly mentioned, um, it is a different plant than that at Bruce and Darlington, but you'll hear a lot of people say this is the oldest nuclear plant in the country. What is being refurbished are the four reactors on the B side, which are actually about five or six years newer than four of the reactors under refurbishment over at Bruce. Um, It requires some similar work at Darlington and some similar work at Bruce, where, for instance, steam generators need to be replaced. That was done at Bruce. So this is all stuff that's within the wheelhouse of the refurbishment work that's happened at the other nuclear plants. Um, 
It is going to be a little bit more complicated for some of the reasons that you mentioned, but you know our refurbishments have been coming in significantly ahead of schedule and under budget, which is a true miracle in the in the Western world, frankly, when it comes to any mega project. And we only have to look at you know hydroelectric dams like Site C and Muskrat Falls, massive delays, double over budget, airports, bridges, subways, <laughs> light light rail tra trains. Um, so we've accomplished something pretty remarkable here. It's it's taken a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, but we have incredible human resources, incredibly skilled project managers, and institutional excellence. Um, so without that, and you, you try and do big nuclear projects, they don't go well. And we've seen that in the US and Europe recently. With that, you have the kind of things we're doing here in Ontario, and I think we should be immensely proud uh, in what we're achieving. Uh, all that said, uh, it, we're also in the midst of a, a global um, industrial or economic shift, uh, really seeing enormous uh, uh, progress made in renewable energies. The costs of uh, solar and wind and batteries have all uh, come down and, and some you know, batteries are coming down uh, rapidly. You know, the International Energy Agency now says you know, solar and wind are basically the cheapest electricity technologies available um, for the, the, the global market. Why then is nuclear the correct choice for Ontario, as I, I su suspect you would say it is? <laughs> well, it's because electricity, like healthcare, is a service, not a commodity. So it's true that when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining, there's really nothing cheaper than those resources on the grid. The reality is a lot of the time they are not. Wind and solar are what I call fair weather friends. And so, you know, as I was mentioning, like healthcare, in my emergency department, we need to be running 24 hours a day and we need to be able critically to plan for and accommodate increased flows of patients, horrible car accidents, mass casualty incidents. We need to be able to mobilize those resources. And so wind and solar, if you were to continue on that healthcare analogy, are a bit like doctors and nurses that will work for almost free when they feel like it. And a solar nurse is never going to work a night shift, right? And, you know, the experiments have been run around the world. In places where we've deployed the most wind and solar, we have the highest electricity prices. California, for instance, highest uh, you know costs in the continental US, Germany, Denmark, these are leaders in renewables deployments. Their grids aren't anywhere as clean as Ontario's and their costs are very high. We're also living through the legacy now of the Green Energy Act, these 20 year feed in tariff contracts that paid far above market rate to try and incentivize the wind and solar industry in Ontario, which never materialized. And, you know, the total cost of that wind and solar build out is estimated to be $62 billion when all is said and done. $3.1 billion every single year uh, to pay these private developers. Never forget that we privatized a good chunk of our electricity system here um, for these, these very lucrative contracts. So everything's got to be put into context. Again, the Ontario Electricity Board uh, regulates the prices that generators are paid. Nuclear is second cheapest at 10 cents, hydro at 8.1 wind 15, solar 50 cents per kilowatt hour. So nuclear is five times cheaper than solar, at least here in Ontario. The Minister of Energy was asked if uh, the government should be pursuing renewables. And he, uh, I believe I'm going from my memory here, but he uh, said that uh, an alternative scenario for Pickering would uh, require uh, 18,000 megawatts of wind and 2,000 megawatts of battery storage, uh, much, much uh, more uh, construction than the 2,000 megawatt uh, nuclear reactor that we're talking about at Pickering. Do you have any sense of what that would cost? 
based on recent numbers coming out of Nation Rise, which is a, a very new wind farm, um, we've costed that 18 gigawatts of wind would cost 40, $41 billion. The amount of batteries required, 12 gigawatt hours, $9.6 billion based on the cost of the battery farm going in on the Oneida Nation um, near Hamilton. Um, so these are truly massive costs. You might say, well, do you really need that much wind? This is more than a tripling of the Ontario wind fleet. Here's the thing about wind. It's, again, a fair weather friend. It doesn't show up when it's most needed. So Ontario's grid is under the most strain during summer when you have this massive air conditioning load. There's a period in 2019, this is not ancient past, where wind was performing at 6% of its capacity, 6.8%, I'll be more generous, for two-week period, right? What we're seeing with our nuclear fleet is, although they're base load generators, because we have a fleet, we can match their output. So we do maintenance in the spring and fall when we least need the energy, and we run all out in the summer. Pickering set a site record uh, this year uh, for most production, um, and they had all six of their reactors running at 100% for you know 100 days throughout our highest demand season. So there again, you get this sense of the value proposition of these different resources and why you need so much wind and so much batteries if you're going to try and attempt the preposterous thing of replacing baseload with intermittent generation. Dr. Kiefer, uh, any final thoughts before we say goodbye? Oh man, there's so much here. Um, <laughs> I mean, again, making making this uh, assessment of the value of, of various investments, the, the can-do fleet that we have in Ontario to date in, in a, adjusted dollars, 2021 dollars, $58 billion, and has generated 17 times more electricity than the wind and solar fleet will generate at the end of those contracts we were discussing earlier. That wind and solar fleet, again, $62 billion in lifetime costs and pr pr producing 17 times less energy. The only other thing I'd add is um, an additional cost to the renewable cost shift, that $3.1 billion that we spend every year to pay off these lucrative contracts we're stuck in. We also lose about a billion dollars a year because wind displaces another very low cost and ultra low emissions source of electricity. And that would be our hydroelectric dams. So when the wind is gusting in spring and fall and we don't need it, we spill water at those hydroelectric facilities. And that ends up costing us another billion a year. So this is complex stuff. There's a, there's a nice story to getting our electricity and our energy from natural flows of energy like the wind and sun. But we're back in the land of mechanical engineering and physics with the machines that are required to harvest this energy. And what it means is sprawling wind turbines across vast landscapes, super large solar farms, or what looks like you know a large nuclear plant, but again, which provides a huge amount of the power to keep the GTA alight at night. So these are things which don't fit easily into narratives, but hopefully I've done a, a, a decent job here trying to uh, shine a bit of light on this sector. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Chris Kiefer, president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Now, just before we go to our regular feature, Your Column, My Column, uh, we want to return to something that we do from time to time when there's something cute to present. And that's a feature we call Quote of Note. And this is a moment from... Monday of this week's news conference, where Doug Ford was trying to be complimentary uh, to a reporter from the Globe and Mail. And, well, let's just say he might have missed a little something uh, in translation. Here we go. But, Jeff, I got to compliment the Globe and Mail. And this is a rarity, folks. Great article. I don't know if you read it, Jeff, but it was... You're to... Oh, you wrote it. Okay, good. You're supposed to compliment see, mine, I think. Uh, you know, Next something time. I didn't see you wrote it. I usually just watch the headline. So congratulations, Jeff. No, that's a great story. I thought it was... Uh, part of Bloomberg. So you, you did it. Good for you. 
Well, um, okay. He loved the story. I guess like most, you know, it's, it, it's reflective of one thing, and that is most people, you and I and all the other people in journalism, we pay close attention to bylines, right? Who writes the stories that we read? Most people don't. And the premier just proved it. <laughs> he sure doesn't. Yeah, no, I've, I've had uh, never with the premier uh, or I, I don't think it's ever happened with a cabinet ministry either. Uh, but I've definitely had that occasion where uh, somebody has, you know, walked up to me and said, hey, did you read this thing? And I'm like, well, I read it. I read a few drafts of it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly because you wrote it. Yes, exactly. There you go. Um, yeah, no. And, and you know, it's it, it's always a, a bit fun. Uh, actually, it also happens a lot on social media where, you know, somebody will say like read this article if you want to understand that you know somebody thinks that they're they've, they've they're totally dunking on you and it's actually like i actually wrote that so <laughs> nice try uh okay let's get to our regular feature your column my column where jmm and i reminisce about columns that we wrote for the website tvo.org over the past week mr mcgrath what are you going to start us off with uh, i did write about the decision to uh, refurbish the pickering uh, nuclear station um you know one thing that we haven't really talked about uh, on the podcast today that i i sort of deal with in that column was the fact that, I mean, one data point that I think probably encouraged the government to uh, really uh, focus on this issue about uh, extending the lifespan of the the Pickering Station is that the nuclear plant is already there, and so are all the transmission lines Mm -hmm. that move the electricity from uh, the power plant to the rest of the grid. And the public acceptance of it being there is also there. Uh, Yes. uh, Pickering, like not that many other places in this province... uh, has a, a constituency of people who are basically, you know, if not happy to have the blue-collar unionized jobs, they are also happy to have, uh, or they are at least resigned to it, so, you know, and um, there's just not that many places in the province where you can say that. And I think at some point we probably will have to talk about citing large new power plants uh, in the, the province, but right now, I think one of the things that's so appealing for the government is that they they don't have to have that specific fight. Right. Uh, more of that will be coming in the future, I'm sure. But for now, uh, this you know I, the the headline was this is the path of least resistance. Uh, some people I think uh, took that as more of an endorsement of the policy than I intended it as. But uh, yeah, I think that's at least one thing motivating the government. Good. Uh, how about yourself, Steve? You know, some people ask you, where do you get your stories from? Where do you get your, you know, your ideas for columns from? And sometimes it is just total serendipity. And that's what happened to me last week. I was talking to a former cabinet minister from the Brian Mulroney years, a guy by the name of John McDermott, who was the MP for Brampton, Georgetown. And we were talking about a completely different subject when he just sort of, oh, by the way, Steve, by the by, um, I had the most astonishing, remarkable thing happen to me in the past few years. Can I tell you about it? And he did. And I thought, this is such a phenomenal story. I want to write a column about it. And so I did. Mr. McDermott was adopted. He knew he had been adopted at the age of three weeks old. Uh, He was the result of a high school fling between his birth mother and some guy Mr. McDermott never knew. But five years ago, at the prompting of a friend, he decided to do Ancestry DNA, and he discovered at the age of 79 that he had a whole mess of biological brothers and sisters that he never knew about. Uh, He was an only child adopted by uh, somebody and was therefore an only child and essentially had no family that he knew of. And he also, in his two marriages, never had any children himself. So he thought he had a fairly small family. Turns out he has an enormous family and he's made contact with all of them. And apparently it's been a wonderful thing for everyone. It's such a feel good story. And um, 
you know, so I've brought it to their attention. And to, to learn this late in life, the identities of his birth mother, his birth father, and then discover that you are actually part of a family where you have multiple siblings. I think I'm trying to remember how many altogether. I think it was four from from one side, maybe two more from his uh, four from his mom's side, two more from his dad's side. It's just a beautiful story. You know, I have I, I think a, a well established division of labor in this podcast where I, I you know handle a lot of like wonky detail stuff. And and one of the things you really excel at is like reminding our listeners, and and I think you do this on the agenda as well, where you you remind people that like the the politicians are also human beings and they they have the human side to their lives mm-hmm. that um, you would never know. I mean, it it is unlikely that this would you know be front page news on a newspaper. No. But it is it is just it is one of those stories that, as you say, it, it, it like this is an extremely human story. And I'm, I'm glad that you were able to bring it to us. And John McDermott is going to celebra- celebrate a birthday, I think, in a couple of weeks. He's going to turn 84. And uh, life is good. Life is good. There we go. That is the On Poly podcast for this Tuesday, February 6, 2024. Remember to listen to the very end to find out what embarrassing comments JMM or I made before we started recording this podcast. You can follow our show on Apple Podcasts so that you get notified each time a new episode is available. And if you already follow our show, help a friend follow it too. Any feedback you have, we're happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpoliticsattvo.org. Make sure to include your first name, last name, and where you're located. And before we let you go, we wanted to give you a small update on the podcast, or should we say our video podcast? Mm-hmm. Starting next week, we are going to be trying something very new and exciting for us. You'll be getting your audio episode in your feed on Fridays, but you can also see our podcast conversation on television every Friday night as the first half of the agenda. And it will also be available on the TVO Today YouTube channel. So it means our days of wearing t shirts and jeans are well and truly over. Wait, wait. Am I no longer allowed to wear jeans? Do I have to? Well, that's a good question. Are they going to shoot us only from the waist up or will they? I mean, I'm not going to come to work in pajamas, but. (laughs) (laughs) No short pants, no pajamas. Maybe we'll let you get away with the blue jeans. All right. Our first video podcast will be out February 16th as we go to this new date and new format. I know other podcasters have been doing this for a while, but it's going to be new for us. And we're pretty chuffed about it, as they yeah, say. Yeah, this will be something new and exciting. Uh, I, I will remind our listeners that uh, of the two of us, I'm the one with zero broadcast training. But I guess it turns out that if you work at a TV station for 10 years, they eventually put you on TV. There you go. <laughs> Especially if you know what you're talking about. So there you go. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Katie O'Connor. Production support from Christine Gardner and Jonathan Hallowell. Until next Friday, everybody. Bye-bye. See you soon. Still trying to download. I'm not sure why this isn't downloading. I have a hotspot. Ah, there we go. Okay. Just needed to feel your disapproval. (laughs) If only that would always work.